Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. And can it be. I hope that you all enjoy that. Such a rich song. Such a good song. The praise team, sometimes they kid me. They say they know when I pick a song because it's all the weird ones. But anyway, hope you enjoyed And Can It Be. It's a good one. Do you have your Bible here this morning? If you do, I encourage you to take it and turn to or power it up, whatever you do. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. And as we continue looking today, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 of Matthew chapter 4. And let me just tell you about a little experience that Katie and I had. We're grateful to be back home. We spent the beginning of last week in Savannah. We were down there for the Georgia Baptist Convention. It was a very busy time, but a time where we had the real privilege of being encouraged by so many people, and prayerfully we uh, were able to reciprocate that and encourage the ones who we were around as well. But it was very busy. Time was very short for us, and my responsibilities at the convention were over about 4 o'clock, and the next morning we had to get to Adelie's Thanksgiving program at 10 a.m. And so after the Thanksgiving program, she would, we were going to eat with her. They were going to have a little meal together. And for those of you who know anything about being a new parent, your schedule is you're always on, really, you, you can plan anything you want, but my wife is, uh, is feeding the baby, breastfed, and so our schedule is his schedule. So we had all these plans of getting up and leaving, and so we actually got up about an hour earlier to leave, and so as we're traveling up the road, it is pitch black dark, the moon is in front of us, we're going up the road to Savannah so that we can make it back to my little girl's Thanksgiving program so that we can eat with her. We're not going to miss Adelie's Thanksgiving program. So it's pitch black dark, we're going through, the moon's in front of us, progressively we watch the sun come up. It was in our rearview mirror. The moon was ahead of us. And I remember Katie saying from the back seat, she was back there making sure the baby was all right, which I'm thankful for. I remember her saying, it got light fast. It was just night just a moment ago, and then all of a sudden it's as bright as day. Now, it was interesting. You know, we, when we talk about the sun coming up, uh, everything changes, doesn't it? You're in the middle of the darkness if you're ever at that moment where you're, especially if you're moving. Most of us watch the sunrise when we're in one place, and so we get to see the sun come up over the landscape. But when you're moving, you really notice things. All of a sudden, you start seeing that the road that looked black is really that concrete gray. You start noticing those trees that look gray. Well, they're really that Georgia pine green. You start to see everything, the clouds, everything just seems to come alive all at once. And the neatest part about it is, is as the sun was coming up, it wasn't, the sun was not even at its height yet. And already that sun was having a devastating effect on the darkness. Devastating effect on the darkness. The sun was coming up. Night was over. A new day was dawning upon us. So we're studying Matthew together as a church on Sunday morning. And we've been seeing Matthew as we've been looking these past few weeks into chapter 4. We've been seeing Matthew paint this portrait of Jesus as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords, as the long-expected Messiah, as the hope of the world, this One who was promised, who's coming to bring order back into chaos. He's coming to bring help. He's coming to bring healing in a world that is really desperate for the salvation that He is bringing. 
Last time when we were together, if you remember, we saw Jesus in chapter 4 being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Where everyone else had failed, here Jesus is tempted in all ways like we are, except the only difference is that He doesn't have any sin. And so today, right after Jesus is baptized and He's led into the wilderness, and after He conquers the devil through temptation, we see Him in our passage today personally proclaiming His mission and His purpose. Let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord together. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the land of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for the privilege You give us of hearing from You this morning. Help us to be diligent to turn all of our affections towards hearing You. To turn all of our attention on hearing You. Trusting, Lord God, as You speak to our hearts through Your Word in the power of the Spirit as Christ is preached to the glory of the Father. That You, our great God, God in three persons, will be magnified and made much of today. We are desperate for this. We ask these things to you and for you in Jesus' name. Amen. So do you see Jesus' mission here? Did you see this is what He's doing? He's coming and He's proclaiming His mission. But notice the way that He is proclaiming His mission. What is His mission? It's, it's couched or it's put in terms of the text. Jesus' mission is to bring light into the darkness. His mission is to devastate darkness with His own light. And so today, let's learn the mission of Jesus as we see His glorious light shining into the darkness. The first thing that I want us to notice from this text is just in the first verse here, when He had heard that John had been arrested. Here's what I want us to learn. Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of the world. Think about this. He's the fulfillment of the hope of the world. What happens is after He comes from this glorious victory over the devil's temptations, He learns that John the Baptist has been arrested. Now remember who John is. We know who John is because the Bible in, in just in Matthew has gone to tell us who John is. John is the baptizer. He is the one who came preaching in the wilderness. He is the one who came calling people to repentance. This John was not just some insignificant person. The Bible tells us in chapter 3 that all the region, Jerusalem, Judea, everyone by the Jordan was coming to this John. John was sort of a big deal. So much so that he was under the uh, suspicion of the authorities. Another gospel tells us that he would go stand outside of Herod's house and preach against Herod. This guy was someone that everyone knew. And so this message that John has is repent. The message that John has is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
In chapter 3, it tells us that John was the forerunner to Christ. He was the one who was preparing the way for Jesus to come. All, like I said, the regions were coming to Him. John is the representative of the entire Old Testament in one person. John is the representative not just of the Old Testament. We say that. What do we mean? He is the representative of the entire hope of the Old Testament. This is why John is standing where he is. It says in chapter 3, he came preaching, but where is he preaching? He's in the wilderness of Judea. He's standing by a certain river. Why is he doing all of these things? Well, the text wants us to know that John is representing the entire story of the Old Testament up until now. He's standing by this river declaring that there's one who's going to come deliver the people from bondage and take them into a promised land. But notice when Jesus begins to take His public ministry. This is important. Look at what the text says. When He heard that John was arrested, it's at that moment that He withdrew into Galilee. Why is this so significant? Here's the reason. Jesus is going to say later about John in Matthew chapter 11 that of those born among women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet then He says this other little thing here. He says, yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Interesting. There's not been one who's ever lived, who's ever been born of a woman, who's been greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is he. What's John's message? What's his message? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. What's Jesus' message? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. So John's entire purpose, his entire ministry, was to yield to someone greater that was coming after him. His entire ministry is told for us in John. John says, I must decrease so that he can increase. This is why Jesus says that John is the greatest born among women. Because that's your purpose. That's my purpose, really. This is why I preach the way that I preach. Having you look at the Bible. Because in my declaration that I'm proclaiming up here, holding the Bible in my hand, having it before you, I'm making a declaration that there is one who's an authority here. It's not me. It's this God of the Scriptures. This is so important for us to really get and really nail home, and especially in this world that's so full of materialism and idolatry, and it's all about me and all this. Jesus is the greatest. He's the brightest. He's the best. It can never be about you if Jesus is in the room. Everything's always going to be about Jesus. I remember one time at First Atlanta, I was talking to my boss one time. He was seeing a little pride in my heart and doing his best to nail it out. You know, it, it's hard to nail out pride in another person's heart. If you've ever tried to do it, it, we're thankful, but it's hard. And I remember him telling me that, Andy, if, if you were to try, and this is so fitting for this, he said, Andy, if you were really to try to get the attention on you, it'd be like you taking a flashlight and shining it into the sun and expecting the sun to notice the flashlight. It's ridiculous. This is exactly what our purpose is as believers. Our purpose as believers is to yield to one greater. And so Jesus, is, He's the greatest of all. Why? Because He understands His purpose. His purpose is to yield to the one greater. Now listen carefully. John's ministry 
was to yield to one greater. The ministry of the entire Old Testament, if John is the representative of the Old Testament, then the entire Old Testament was to point us, lead us to Christ. If John is the Old Testament encapsulated, the representative of the Old Testament, then you know who Jesus is? Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, I want us to think about that for just a minute because, you know, we could just turn back a few pages. And, you know, just in my Bible, just so that I can show you, this is the Old Testament, right? Here's this side of the Old Testament. Then you got this side, that's the New Testament. We say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. What in the world do we mean when we say that? Oftentimes, I'm like you, I'm inclined to think about certain prophecies that maybe Jesus came fulfilling. Maybe He, you know, you have this promise of born of a virgin. Yep, He was born of a virgin. Live us in this life. Yep, He lived. Die on a cross. Yep, rise through. Yep, okay. A, B, C, D. It's analogical. That's as far, that's as deep as we go. When we say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that's the only thing that we think about. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to Jesus, but what on earth does that mean? Now, oftentimes, when we think in terms of old and new, Old covenant, new covenant. We think about terms of relevance and irrelevance, right? That's what the way that we think. For example, if you want a new car, most of you don't keep the old car. Well, you know, unless you're Mr. Tommy Compton, then he's still got the same Bronco that he and his wife dated in, which is a great thing. Guys, I just am not smart enough like him. I can't do that. But most of the time, if you want a new car, most of us don't keep the old car. Most of us, if we want a new piece of furniture, a new bedroom suit, we're okay paying the disposal fee so they can take our old furniture away. And so we think about terms of relevance and irrelevance, but listen carefully. When we put the terms and the labels of Old and New Testament on Scriptures, don't think about terms of relevance and irrelevance. Look at what Jesus is doing. Understand this. Jesus waits until John is imprisoned purposefully. Now, John's ministry as far as a public ministry is over. He's never, as far as we know, he's never going to get out of this prison. Never going to get out. The next time we hear from John, he's going to be in a prison of despair. He's going to be asking whether or not Jesus is the real deal. That's when we get to him in Matthew chapter 11. Are you the Christ or should we expect another? John, the only way that he's going to make it out of prison is in a body bag. He's going to have his head removed by Herod. He's never going to make it out. And so here he is in prison. Jesus then, after he's been arrested, then he begins his ministry purposefully. And the reason I think that it is is because Jesus didn't want it to seem like he was competing with John. John and Jesus are not telling different messages. They're telling the same message. John is saying, look to Jesus. Jesus comes, and you know what He says? Look to Me. He's the only one, by the way, qualified to do that. When someone falls on their feet to worship Jesus, what does Jesus do? He's not like the angels that we see in the Bible. The angels say, whoa, don't worship Me. I'm just like you. What does Jesus do? He doesn't say anything. He receives it. That's what Jesus does. He's the only one qualified to be able to do that. So John says, look to Jesus. Because He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus says, look to Me. And so they're both saying the same message. 
Listen carefully to me this morning. Listen carefully. The way to God. Listen. The way to God is through the Son of the Scriptures. Not just any Jesus. We want this Jesus who has come in this way to tell us what He's done. Otherwise, you can be a Mormon and and get to God. If you say that Jesus doesn't have to come according to the Scriptures, but we can't say that. Jesus has come in a certain way. The way to God is through the Son of the Scriptures. Listen, as we are going through Matthew together, we're going to learn something. I want you to mark this in your mind. You're going to see a phrase repeated in Matthew over and over and over again. We have it here in our text, beginning in verse 14. It says, So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Over and over again in Matthew, it's going to say, so that this was to fulfill what was said. Jesus did this purposely to fulfill what was written. Why? Because Matthew wants us to see Jesus is the one who has come in a particular way. And how did He come? He came according to the Scriptures. Listen carefully. This is why Paul says what he says in one of the most significant passages in all of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That wonderful passage that we read at everybody's funeral. The resurrection passage. That's what we want. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins. Now let's stop right there. What's Paul saying? This, what he's fixing to declare, how important is it? Primary importance. Look at what he says. That Christ died for our sins. How? According to the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised. How? According to the Scriptures. Not according to some eyewitness testimony, although that's important. Not according to all this and that. How is Christ resurrected? Pilate said it? No. Herod said it? No. How do we know? Here's the main thing. He died and was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. If you disregard the Bible, you will never make it to God. Because the Jesus that you worship is not the God of the text. This is why, beloved, we make such a big deal about inerrancy as Southern Baptists. We fought this battle back in the 80's for those of you who remember that time. We fought the battle for the Bible. Why? Because there's no salvation anywhere else. In other words, if you don't read the Old Testament and come to Jesus, you are not reading the Old Testament the right way. If you read the New Testament and you get any other picture than Jesus, this Jesus, then you're not reading the Bible the same way. Listen carefully. Jesus has come to fulfill the longing. He's come to fulfill the hope of the Old Testament. Now listen carefully. What in the world then is the hope and the expectation of the Old Testament? Listen. The expectant hope of the Old Testament is nothing short of hope for the whole world. This is how encompassing we have to have our worldview. We don't want to have a Jesus that just fits into our little holy huddle. The Bible is the true story of the whole world. This is why we begin in a book called Genesis. We begin in a book called Genesis because what does it tell? The book of Genesis tells the story of God creating what? Everything. 
Not just creating Israel. Not just creating one little person. You know, it's not as if you know, we who believe in Him, we're created in God's image. Everybody else is not created in God's image. Everyone, all of humanity, is created in the image of God and thereby capable of having a relationship with God. This is not just your story. Oxford Baptist churches and the Southern Baptist Convention or the Christians at large or the evangelicals, whoever. This is not just for the Catholics or whatever. This is not just the Christian story. The Bible is the true story for the whole world. And if this is everyone's story, then you know what that means? It means that all of us have one single hope. And the one single hope that all of us have is fulfilled and met in Jesus. Jesus is the one by who all of our hopes and dreams come true. Now the hope that we have is a hope of a salvation in the Son. And what did He do? By fellowshipping with us causes us to fellowship with God for all of eternity. He has come to take our lives and conceal our lives in God's own life. Enfolding our lives for all eternity into His own life. Making us His very own. He unites us with Himself for all eternity. I don't know about you, but that's good news. That we who were dwelling in darkness in the deep sea of depravity, God snatches us from the bottom. He snatches us from our tombs and makes us alive to enjoy life with Him. How did He do that? By joining Himself with us. You see, this is why Verses 13 through 16 are so powerful. Look at what happens. It shows us the situation that Jesus walked into. Jesus has walked into a land, as we just saying, that was fast bound by sin and nature's night. And why did he do that? In order that he could shine the brightest light into the darkest night. And even the darkest night was no match for how bright his light was. Now, you see number two this morning. Jesus turns the darkest night into the brightest day. And by the way, as you think about that, as you write that down, of course, He is the brightest light. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one like our God. Isn't this our confession? He is the only begotten of the Father. Light of light. Very God of very God. He is begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father. This is what we say about Him. Colossians says it best, better than anything you and I could say. What does Colossians say? It says that He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him everything holds together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. 
by the blood of his cross. There is no one like Jesus. So what do we see him doing after he hears that John is arrested? I love this. What do we see him doing? What's he do? Look at the Bible. After he sees John being arrested, he withdraws into Galilee. Why in the world does he go to Galilee? Well, it's really just one reason. It has nothing to do, though this may have something to do with it, but really this is not the main purpose. I don't think Jesus is fleeing for his life. I don't think he is. I don't think that he's seeking a safer place, though that could happen. You know what I think that he's doing? The text tells us. You know what he's doing? He's fulfilling Scripture. He knew his purpose from the very beginning. The Bible says in Revelation that he was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Just very quickly, what does it mean? It means that God's free choice to create the universe in the way that He created that gave you free choice and me free choice, if He were to create the world in the way that He created, it meant that the Son was going to have to die. And here's the beautiful part of it. Yet, He still chose to create anyway. The reason He's doing this is so what was spoken of the prophet Isaiah must be fulfilled. Now, let me tell you something. Any time in the Bible, especially in Matthew, you see that lingo there, so that what was spoken of might be fulfilled, that's a reference point for us to go back to where it was so that we can enjoy what was being said. There's some scholarship that suggests that Matthew was written in Hebrew so the Jews could rightly understand it. What does that mean? It means that they would understand and know the reference to Isaiah better than you and I probably do. So let's do this. Hold your place in Matthew and let's turn to Isaiah just for a moment. Now, sometimes Matthew doesn't tell us where this is being fulfilled. You'd have to go and, and find it yourself. Thankfully, most of our Bibles have little letters beside it so that they tell us where it is. Of course, this reference comes from Isaiah chapter 9. But in order for us to understand what Matthew's saying, let's go to Isaiah chapter 6 just so we can get some of the context. And so as you're turning over there to Isaiah chapter 6, holding your place in Matthew chapter 4, let me tell you a little bit about the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a book that is filled with this imagery of light and darkness. You see, the people of God, in Isaiah 49, it says the people of God were to be a light to the nations. But instead, what do they do? Instead, the people of God chose unfaithfulness. They chose to be stubborn. They chose to be unfaithful. They chose to be sinful. And so really, the purpose that Isaiah is writing is really found in just the first couple of chapters. It sums it up really well. The darkness that the people of God enjoyed. And the book of Isaiah is written to encourage them to not enjoy the darkness, but to walk in the light of the Lord. You see, because Isaiah is a book that is a book of promise. Isaiah is a book written to a people in darkness that promises them that though their sins are as scarlet, red, crimson, they're going to be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they would be as white as wool. So that's the promise that sets out Isaiah. You're sinful, you're living in darkness, but I'm going to do something about it to save you. By the time we come to Isaiah 6 and 9, there's a really a common thread that goes all throughout Isaiah chapter 6 and chapter 9. And the common thread is this, that grace comes through judgment. Grace comes through judgment. Judgment. And for you and I, 
uh, as followers of Jesus preaching in a Christian church like this, this side of the cross, that should relate to us. We understand that grace comes through judgment. Why? Because we understand that God sent His Son to die, judged Him for our sakes, so that He could give us His life. So that He could give us grace. So let's look first at Isaiah chapter 6. That's Isaiah 6, and just very briefly, I just want to walk you through Isaiah 6, 7, 8, and 9. Isaiah chapter 6 is probably one of the most famous passages in all of the book of Isaiah. This is that one where if you grew up in youth camp like me, youth ministry like me, then this was that passage. We had a band in uh, my youth group that used to be popular called Like Isaiah. We wanted to be like Isaiah. Here I am, send me. This is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, if you were reading it, you see this. He has this glorious vision of the Lord. And then this vision prompts him to be awestruck. And he surrenders to whatever God has for him. And he goes in Isaiah chapter 6, if you read it closely, his attitude goes from woe is me, that's judgment, to here I am, send me, which is grace. And then in Isaiah chapter 7, there's a story of this king by the name of Ahaz. And the folly of King Ahaz eventually leads to this external army, the Assyrian army coming in and making desolation of the place, destroying through this invasion, and that's judgment. But in the midst of all that, Ahaz is crazy. He brings about desolation, and that's the judgment. But in all of that, Isaiah chapter 7 is one of these wonderful passages where God promises that He's going to send a son who's going to come born of a virgin. And there we have grace. And then by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 8, we have the continuation of the story of Isaiah chapter 7. But Isaiah chapter 8 tells the story of judgment. The people have gotten themselves into an absolute mess by choosing to trust in themselves instead of waiting on the Lord. And Isaiah 8 really shows the deepness of the darkness. And I want us to read now Isaiah chapter 8 beginning in verse 20 through 22. Listen to what it says. It says, if they will not speak according to this word, in Isaiah 8.20, it is because, look at this language, they have no dawn. They have no light. Let's keep going. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now that's judgment. There's no way around that but to see that this is judgment. But thanks be to God, the Bible doesn't end with any tone of judgment. Instead, Isaiah chapter 9 follows Isaiah chapter 8. And look at the first word of Isaiah chapter 9. What is it? It's but. There's a contrast there. The contrast is there to say, alright, here's what happened in Isaiah chapter 8. There's darkness. There's deep darkness. But. Anytime you see such a contrast like that in the Scriptures, usually it's a contrast of grace. Here's where you were, but look at what I'm fixing to do. Let's read Isaiah chapter 9. Look at this. This is so, this is so wonderful. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. 
he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, a land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now here's where it gets good. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them, listen, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they were glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the days of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, look at this, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and for forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so, what happens in Matthew then? After we read what it is the people cast in darkness, what does Jesus do in Matthew? Listen carefully. The first place that Jesus begins His ministry is the darkest place. Look at the language in Matthew chapter 4.16. Look at this. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Where are they? They're dwelling in the region of the shadow of death. Look at the language. On them a light has dawned. On them a light has dawned. You see, this was a people who were trying to find satisfaction. But they could never truly be satisfied. They were a people who were trying to find joy. But instead of joy, all they could have was sadness. It was a people who were trying to find love, but really they were just loving themselves instead of really being genuine and loving others. And the Bible says that on these people who are in the pits of depravity, on the deepest, darkest place, on them, a light has dawned. God took the initiative. God determined to bring salvation regardless of how lost they were, regardless of how deep in the pit of depravity they were, God did not allow their sinfulness. He did not allow our sinfulness to keep Him from coming and saving us. But what did He do? The same thing that He did here is the same thing that He'll do for you. He will overcome whatever it is that separates you from Him. And that's what He does. He sees you pitiful. He sees me pitiful lost without any hope in the world. And He comes to you individually. He comes to me individually. And He says, let me show you what true life is. Let me show you what it means to see. God is solely 
responsible for salvation. It's not as if we were, we were out looking for light and mumbling, our, trying to find the light switch, and then all of a sudden we meet this certain quota, and then all of a sudden, oh, because I'm, I made it to level 17, then the lights come on. No, that doesn't happen. We had no idea. We thought that we were pursuing good. Most of the Jews, they thought, we're children of Abraham. They said, we've never been enslaved. What do you mean? And then Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Don't you get it? The entire Bible, everything points to me. We were lost, utterly depraved in darkness, but all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. And what does He do? He takes the darkest night, and by, because of who He is, He can make the darkest night turn into the brightest day. And then look at what He says. What's His message? How are we going to get in on this? How is it that we come to this light? How do we get in on this? There's one way. Look at His message in verse 17. From that time. What time? After the dawn of the brightest day. From that time. After He had come to the darkest place. From that time, Jesus began to preach. What did He say? Repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what is repentance? For those of you who are going through the Gospel Project and were here a couple of weeks ago, you learned what repentance was. It's not simply turning from something. It's also turning towards something. And what is it that Jesus desires for us to turn towards? What is it? Or should I say, who is it? Jesus desires for us to turn to Him. And who is He? He is the light of the world who stepped down into darkness. The One who opened our eyes so that we could see beauty. So that we could know love. You ever heard the phrase, and I know that you have, like a moth drawn to a flame? That's the image that we need to have with Jesus. In other words, He is inescapable. He is unavoidable. Number three this morning, Jesus can't be ignored if He is who He said He was. If Jesus is this light of the world, if everything is so dark, and Jesus is so bright, He cannot be ignored. Listen, what He does is completely unavoidable. And it's amazing what He does. It's incredible what He does. The Gospel message is a message that the world, listen carefully, will never get over. I won't ever forget going to Jerusalem for the first time. We went during Christmas. Well, we went the day after Christmas. We flew into Tel Aviv. And when we got over there, you know, it was so wonderful. The city of Bethlehem was still decorated for Christmas. I love it. I texted some of my preacher friends this morning saying that I was praying for them. You know what I'm doing here this morning? The same thing that you're doing here this morning. You know what we're doing here this morning? We are doing something that people have been doing on Sundays for nearly 2,000 years. We are here together proclaiming there is a King who died, who rose again, and He's going to come again. The world will never get over what happened with Jesus. This is who He is. This is why some Jewish guy, if we look at the way the world looks at it, 2,000 years ago, dying a death of a criminal on one hill for six hours one Friday, that one event has made all the difference in the world. This is why. Because Jesus is unavoidable. Though He was in the form of God, did not 
count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did He do? This is what Philippians says. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the cruelest of deaths. Death on a cross. And what has happened as a result of that? Listen, this is not just one day. This is today. And then one day, it's present as well as to come. Look at what happened as a result of this One who has come. As a result of His obedience. As a result of what He did on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. And bestowed upon Him a name. What is it? It's above every name. Do you believe that this morning? Do you really believe that Jesus' name is above every name? Even though the world doesn't confess that, we believe it. We believe the most powerful man in the world is nothing compared to Jesus. And this is why Jesus coming, declaring in a world that is ruled by Rome, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is why this is political dynamite. Look at what He says. He bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at this name, every knee should bow. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess. Jesus. Jesus. What's His name? His Lord. To the glory of God the Father. It's real simple. Because of who He is, this is why we love Him. This is why He is the object of our affections. This is why we come together and we worship Him. There's really one reason, and it's real simple. You know why? We have seen the light. We have seen not just any light. We've seen His light. The light of the world. Listen to this beautiful poem by L. Houseman. Light, look down and beheld darkness. Thither will I go, said light. Peace looked down, and beheld war. Thither will I go, said peace. Love looked down, and beheld hatred. Thither will I go, said love. So came light, and shone. So came peace, and gave rest. So came love, and brought life. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as John says, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only one begotten of the Father. And as we think about our Jesus, as we think about this Christ, I just want to ask you, do you know him. Do you find Him beautiful? The most beautiful one you've ever seen in your life. Do you know Him? Is He beautiful to you? Do you love Him? Let me tell you this morning. He loves you so much that He gave Himself so that you could be His for all eternity. And how do you embrace Him? There's one way. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, we love You and we praise You. 
Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to shine into darkness. Thank you, Lord God, for not allowing our darkness to keep you from shining your light. Father, if there's one here today who doesn't know you, would this be the moment where they embrace the beauty of the sun? Would this be the moment where you, in your glorious way, break through their stony, dark hearts, penetrate their dead heart with your glorious light. We love you, and we're here to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray God will use this message for his glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at oxfordbaptistchurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.